Thank you, choir, and so look forward to tonight and tomorrow night. It's always one of the highlights of the year uh, for me personally to come and be a part of the uh, presentation of Carols by Candlelight, and I hope that you will be able to be here tonight. Invite someone to uh, be with you, if at all possible. Father, thank you now for your word, and we pray that you would encourage us through it today. And Lord, help us to take away from this Christmas season, uh, Lord, uh, commitments to you in a fresh and new way, perhaps, Lord, some for the first time in their lives. And we, Lord, will praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, every week when we come into um, this building, we're surrounded by these beautiful stained glass uh, windows. Um, they leaked for a while when I first came here, these two right here, and uh, we had to spend a whole lot of money for them to take them all out to North Carolina to uh, rework them and reset them in the, uh, in the frames. But they're very beautiful, and if you notice, they're different scenes, like Jesus being baptized there by John the Baptist, different scenes depicted in the, in the stained glass windows. Now, in some ways, historically, some of our ancestors would be surprised to see that we have stained glass windows in our buildings as Protestants. When the Reformation began 500 years ago and spread Protestantism into the world, in England, large numbers of medieval and Renaissance windows were smashed and they were replaced with plain glass. Even if you're a Presbyterian, you know in that tradition, in the Puritans, you don't see a lot of stained glass windows in that tradition. And that would historically be true in a lot of ways until recent days and past century or so in Baptist life. Stained glass windows like statues and icons and altars were associated with Catholicism and thus they were rejected, sometimes violently in that way. Over time, however, in various places, the windows made a comeback, and so it's not unusual in churches like ours with this beautiful architecture uh, to see stained glass windows depicting uh, biblical scenes. And there's a story behind that as well. It's not just stained glass windows, there are biblical scenes in them. And that comes out of the Middle Ages, and stained glass windows with scenes from the Bible were popular because they're a way of teaching people. Pope Gregory used to um, urge his artists, or urge artists to paint biblical scenes on church walls to educate the public. And then the windows served that same purpose. The masses were illiterate. They didn't have the Bible. They couldn't read the Bible if they had it. And so as one church synod put it, these things, quote, enable illiterate people to learn what books cannot teach them. And so that's why we still have these windows. Not that we're illiterate, but that's the historical basis behind them. When we read the gospel birth narratives in Matthew and Luke, John and Mark do not deal with the birth. But in Matthew and Luke, over time, as we read those stories, they they begin to form something like pictures in our minds, don't they? They're so familiar, these scenes from the Christmas story. We see the events taking place as though we're looking sometimes at a stained glass window. And thus, it gets depicted in other ways now. You have nativity sets in your home, do you not? Many of you? We, I don't know how many we have, but uh, we have s- several. Some homemade from Grandma right, that you have, you pass down through the generations. You don't, we don't have scenes like that at Easter. 
right? But we do it at Christmas because these stories are very familiar. We have statues in our baptistry of Mary and the baby and the wise men uh, that uh, happen to be there. And we see living manger scenes around town, right? You can drive around town and see manger scenes. And the church I pastored in Kentucky, we're out in the country. We actually built a road out in a field and we built individual sets. And we told the Christmas story from creation with the fall in the garden. And so you'd drive your car in, we'd give you something to play it on. And so you'd drive to scene one and it's depicting a story. And so you drove around all the scenes. And then we registered when you, when you left. It was a great way of finding people who run church. We're out in the middle of the country. I had 700 cars drive through in a couple of nights one year doing that. And people always were excited about it. We were not a big church, so everybody was involved uh, dressing up in the different characters. We had animals uh, everywhere, and uh, it was a lot of fun to do that. We just don't have the... I thought about doing it here, but it would be, uh, the city uh, police would not be happy with us. So <laughs> we've not tried that one. But this morning, as we're thinking about these scenes, I want to invite you to think about them in light of stained glass. I want to invite you to visit the stained glass pictures we find in God's Word to give us a composite lesson of what are the big takeaways for us from these Christmas stories for our lives. And I pray that as we talk about these today, these will become pictures that are driving forces in our lives as we revisit them like the ancient people would, the stained glass windows when they walk by and look at the scenes and learn from them. I've entitled the message today, Christmas in Stained Glass. So if you have your Bibles, I want to read out of the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, just one verse. We read the story earlier about the shepherds, and we'll come back to them. And we'll be interacting with all of the main stories for the most part, but I'm not going to read through every one of them. That would take too long. So we'll just start today with Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, where the Bible says, She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, as we think about these scenes, there are four of them I want you to look at with me today. And the first stained window we come to with the depiction in it, the first picture is what is known as the Annunciation. That is, the Annunciation means the announcement of the incarnation or the impending birth of Jesus. Now, you'll find that in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. You remember where the angel came and he appears to... Uh, Mary, and so we have Mary getting the, the message from the angel, then we have her visiting Elizabeth, and then we have her song uh, while she's at Elizabeth's house. Now, what we learn from this one up front is that in this picture of Mary having the baby and the story of Mary receiving the announcement is the idea that the first takeaway is we need to understand that we must rely on the baby. In our culture, instead of what Mary was told as revealed in the Scripture as we read here, we, we now sing about her ignorance. I like the song we just sang, but I'm about to talk about the song we just did. In our culture, we, we focus not so much on what she knew, but what she did know. So the name of the song we just did is uh, Mary, Did You Know? Uh, Mark Lowry, the 
Christian comedian and tied to the Gaither uh, vocal group. He wrote this song some years ago, and it's become a regular feature in Protestant Christmas celebrations and worship, and it's a great song. I like it. But I say Protestant because Catholics hate this song because this song, if you read it closely, it goes against the central tenet of Catholic theology. So when you come to the lines, Mary, did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you? Well, that goes against the Catholic dogma of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. Immaculate means clean. That is, in Catholic theology, when Mary was born by her mother Anne and she gave birth to Mary, she was protected from original sin so that she's a clean vessel through whom the Messiah would come. So Mary, yes, was a sinner in a sense, but she was already saved on the future merits of Jesus. So she doesn't need to be saved when Jesus shows up on the scene. And so Catholics, if you go online, you can read a lot of Catholic priests. They just uh, take a hatchet to this song. They, They don't like this particular song at all. But frankly, regarding what Mary knew, Mary knew quite a bit about this child. The angel told her. So while I like the song, we, we must give Mary a bit more credit. And one thing we know that Mary did know about Jesus was that Mary, like the rest of the creation, did need a Savior. That's the central thing. There is no biblical foundation for the immaculate conception of Mary. You don't find that anywhere in the Bible. That just comes out of the Pope decreeing it some time ago, the Immaculate Conception, to make the theology work. You can't find that in the Word of God. You do find the virgin birth, but you don't find the Immaculate Conception. Mary was a sinner, just like all of us. And like all of us, she needed to be saved. And so the takeaway from this first stained glass window is that we must rely on the baby. And Mark Lowry is right in those terms. She did need to fully understand that, and she did understand that she needed a Savior. So as we look at the text of the Annunciation, this truth is borne out for us. After Mary receives this announcement about the birth of Jesus, we come to her song. And you'll notice in chapter 1, verse 47, in Mary's song, it says, And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary was a sinner, and she had to rely upon this one that she was bearing. He was her Savior. And so the first takeaway from our Looking at the stained glass window today is most centrally is that all of us must rely on the baby. That is the key to everything about your life and your existence, my life and my existence beginning here and going out into eternity. There's nothing more important than this point that is being made right here as we look at this window. His name, she was told, was to be Jesus, for he will save his people from their what? Sins. I want to ask you a question. Have you come to the point in your life of where you are relying upon Jesus, the Savior, for eternal life? You see, eternal life comes when we abandon any way of trying to save ourselves, for we cannot, for we must be perfect. When we abandon that and we place our trust in Jesus, who lived a sinless life, who died in our place, who was buried, and rose again. And he says, if you will place your faith in me, be willing to turn from your sin, I will give you eternal life as a gift. We celebrate gift giving in this season. 
rooted in the fact that the greatest gift has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you this morning, the central takeaway is this, have I trusted in Jesus as my Savior? Have you done that? Has there been a point in time or a season in your life where you came before God to deal with the fact that you have sinned? You are separated from Him. You cannot give Him what He demands of you. And you must rely upon His provision in His Son by faith. You must call upon Him to be your Savior. Has that taken place in your life? As you look at Mary giving birth to this baby and saying that she rejoices in God, her Savior, has He become your Savior as well? Moving around a bit in the Gospels, we come to the next stained glass image in the text, and in it we find the story of the wise men. Now, we have three depictions of the wise men in the baptistry. You've probably heard this before. Why do we have three wise men? Because there were three gifts that they brought. Scholars believe there were probably many wise men who came because the text says when you read the story in Matthew 2, 1 through 12, that all of the city of Jerusalem was in an uproar when these guys came into town. There's no small three guys and their entourage coming. This was a huge group of people that came into the town. And they arrived, they came from the east, and the text says they came because they wanted to worship the Lord Jesus. Now, we know these guys, another term for them is the Magi. They came from the east, and what today you and I would think of as Iran or Iraq. And these were men who had studied the stars from the ancient area of Babylon. And they may have been familiar with prophecies about this one that would come, prophecies that were written by Daniel, a Jew, who 600 years before Jesus' birth, he had been a political prisoner in that area of the world. And in that area of the world, Daniel lived. And Daniel wrote his prophecies in his book that's recorded in the Old Testament. The book of Daniel is called and looked at as the book of Revelation in the Old Testament. It's full of prophecies about what is to come. And one prophecy Daniel had given was about a king who would come in the future, who would be an eternal king. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, we read these words, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The speculation is, and perhaps rightly, that these were men who knew these texts, and they were looking for this one who would come, this king who would come. And so they came this long distance to find Him when they saw this star. And the text says that they came to worship Him. Worship is their intention, and rightly so. And so when you and I stop and look at this stained glass window of the wise men, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the person that we should worship, worship the baby. Now in this picture, when we read the story, and if you want to open your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 12, again, I'm not going to read all of the 
verses, but you can look at it as I, as I, as I talk. But pay attention to what I'm saying. Multitask there, if you would. Um, but in this picture, we see God moving the very lights of heaven to show the way to the baby, right? They followed that light, that star. God is, is moving the very lights of heaven to bring them to where they need to, to be to find this newborn child. And furthermore, we see that these men are not Jews, but they are Gentiles. These are Gentiles. And they're coming from far away, led by God through the stars to worship this baby, Jesus. And so the point in this picture is that all of creation, thus we see the star, and all of the peoples of the earth, both Jew and Gentile, because Mary and Joseph, they're Jews, and here we have Gentiles, the two big classes of people from the very moment he is born, understanding that this is the person who is to be worshipped. The idea is that all of the creation and all of humanity is to submit and to worship the Lord Jesus. Jesus is to have no rivals. And that's the second big takeaway from this picture. And this message is a spiritual message then to the whole world, summarized well by Paul in the book of Acts chapter 17. You remember when Paul went to the city of Athens, a very cosmopolitan city, a uh, city that would have been uh, a multinational city. It was a city that had every type of religion you wanted to find would have been found in the city of Athens. And Paul does not go there and say to them, well, I'm really happy you all have a religion. We should all celebrate you have religion and you believe in God. But that isn't what Paul goes and says to them. Paul goes and says to them something about Jesus Christ and about their view of him and who he is. Paul does not here say everybody is okay as long as they believe in some form of God. If that were true, Jesus Christ has no role really to play. We don't need a Savior if we're going to be saved in other ways than through him. But Paul says in the book of Acts chapter 17, when he's there speaking to the leaders of the city, the philosophers, the intellectuals, it says in Acts 17 verse 29, he's talking about what God has done, ultimately leading to Jesus. And he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past... God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, notice what the phrase says. Would you read this with me? Now he commands, are you looking at Acts 17 verse 30? Read it with me. Now he commands all people everywhere. Did you see that? He commands, let's read those three words again, all people everywhere to repent. All people. Why does he do that? For he has set a day when he will judge the whole world with justice. By who? By the baby who grew up to be the man. By the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Friend, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. There is no way to the Father but through him. 
And so we must rely upon the baby. And rightly growing out of that is the idea that all of creation is called to worship him. And thus Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 where he gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus, the Son of God, leaving heaven, taking on earth, uh, human flesh on earth, in Jesus of Nazareth, in the incarnation. And Paul says of him in Philippians chapter 2 about our lives before him. Philippians 2 in verses 8 through 10. The Bible says that, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Notice where? In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May I ask you a question this morning as you look at this depiction in the glass? Are you a person who truly worships Jesus? Have you relied upon him, first of all, for your salvation? And have you developed your relationship of really understanding the majesty and the glory of this one that these men came and bowed down to, to the point that you are worshiping him? We're called to worship him. What does that mean? To praise him, to adore him, to revere him, to hold Jesus above all other devotions in our lives. Does the language, listen, does the language of adoration flow from your lips in your relationship with Jesus Christ? In your prayer life, are you a person when you come before Jesus? Do you hear the words of praise and worship and adoration and submission to Jesus coming out of your mouth because it's in your heart? Or is it simply a life of where you go to Jesus and you may say, I love you, but here's what I need. Please do this. Please do that. But the core of our being, because what we're going to be doing in eternity is worship. And that is the central purpose of our lives here is to be worshipers in spirit and in truth. This picture is one of determined open worship of the new and eternal king as they come to find him, to worship him, they say. There's a third picture in our building, small building, just four windows. But the third window we come to today that these texts show us, reveal to us, that become you know, uh, emblazoned upon our minds is that we're reminded as well that we're to serve the baby. And in this one, we'll stick with the wise men again. When we look at their story, there's another feature, another hue in the glass as the light shines through. When the wise men came from afar, as the old translations put it, the text says they came bearing gifts. What were the gifts? Say them with me. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we sometimes get hung up on the meaning of the gifts, like gold. Some say that it represented royalty and thus a gift fit for a king. Some say the frankincense was something that people were researching at that time that was good for arthritis. So herbal elements for the baby to grow up and help him with arthritis. I don't buy that one, but it's out there. Um, other, others point out 
that in, in ancient inscriptions of gifts given to kings and other royalty in the world from that era that you do find these things listed among the gifts that you would give to royalty. But I think there's something more here. In the Old Testament, as, as Isaiah, another prophet, prophesies about the coming restored glory of Israel, we find a picture of the nations coming to Israel to the light and they're bearing gifts. You remember in Isaiah chapter 60 and verses 3 through 6, if you would turn back there to the Old Testament for a moment, the prophet Isaiah prophesying about the glory of Israel arising again. And he says in verses 3 through 6, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. And all from Sheba will come. Bearing gold and literally frankincense. And proclaiming the praise of the Lord. Jesus is the consummate Israelite. He is Israel personified. He is light revealed. And so... It is right and good that they come bearing these gifts in that, in that sense. And so in essence, the light of the nation of the world is Jesus. And in this picture, we see people making an arduous and taxing journey, bringing the best they have to lay it at the feet of the one who is light. John, in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 9, reminds us about Jesus coming to the world And here we see John alluding to the incarnation when he says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And that's what John has to say about the birth, is the light. And so the takeaway from this window is this, is that those who come to rely on the baby, as Mary did, put their trust in him, which that's what we first must do. Those then are called to be worshipers of this new king, Then thirdly, we see that we're to be people who serve the baby. Serve the baby and give him our very, very best in our lives. That's what we see these men doing as well. They came from a long distance and they brought their best to him to serve him, to worship him. It's an act of service. I heard a story just recently in a funeral. As a matter of fact, earlier this week, about a missionary who was retiring from the field in a poor part of the world. And the indigenous peoples that he'd been working with brought him gifts. They wanted to bring him gifts before he left. And so different things were brought to him. And one older lady came up and she had this huge, beautiful conch shell that was very valuable. And they weren't on the coast. And the missionary knew that for her to give that to him, she had had to walk a long distance to get it to come and present it to him. He knew what a sacrifice it had been for her to do so. And he said, this is such a wonderful gift. I don't deserve this gift. You, you have gone out of your way. You had to walk so far. And she said to him, walk part of gift. That is, part of the gift was she walked to bring it to him. She gave herself to bring that to him. And these men that we have depicted up here, They came from a long way away. It was not an easy journey to come and worship him, but also give unto Jesus. 
their very, very best that they had. You know, we are to give Him our best in all that we do in life. But we want the world to see all of our life pointing to this one who is the light. Paul writes in Colossians 3.17 in the New Living Translation, and I like the New Living Translation on this particular text, when it says, And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Isn't that wonderful? We're to be giving our best in whatever we say or do, because we're wanting to be people who represent the baby. We're serving the baby and giving Him our best for His cause to advance in the world. Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, that whatever we do, do it all under the glory of God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are seeking to glorify Him. So this King always deserves our best as we serve Him and seek to point others to Him through our words and deeds. Let me ask you. And always remember when a preacher is pointing his finger at you, he's pointing free back at himself. So let me ask us. Are we people... As we look back over our lives this past year, would we say that we're people who've been giving Jesus Christ and we claim to be our Lord and King our best? Do our ethical lives reflect the standards that Jesus Christ says should reflect the lives of His disciples? When He said, if you love me, keep my what? Commandments. Love of Jesus is not something we simply say, I love Jesus. I feel I love Jesus. Jesus said, your love is shown by how you live. Are we seeking to give him our best? Jesus says, keep my commandments. Does our use of time and talent and treasure show that we're seeking to give to him our best? And as we look at this stained glass window today with the depiction of the wise men traveling from afar bringing their best to Jesus. I exhort all of us to grow out of this season with the determination to give Him conscientiously our best, for it is right. Isn't it wonderful to look at windows and revisit the stories? They preach to us not just what happened in the moment, but the application for time. So we're to rely upon the baby, worship the baby, serve the baby. And then there's one other glass, one other window. If you would just give me a moment, I want to ask you to look at it. And it is a window that gives us one other thing that we're to be doing in our lives. Rely. You say these with me, we need to rely upon him, worship the baby, serve the baby, giving him our best. And the fourth one is that we need to be people who share the baby. And in this one, it's the window featuring the shepherds that we looked at in the beginning in the scriptural call to worship in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, if you would look back there, in verses 8 through 21. We see here the message given to them by angels. They go to the stable to see the baby. As people look into this glass display of the shepherds, the angels, and the manger, they see different things about this. In other words, in the picture of the shepherds at the stable, with the baby, with Mary, some people, they have different understandings of what the shepherds signify. Some people 
say that the shepherds would have been seen as the common Joes of their culture. So the idea here is that Jesus is for the common man. Some used to say that, you know, they were seen as unclean, and so he's there to cleanse them. But that seems to be something that came later. Uh, Shepherds are depicted in the Bible in favorable terms. Remember Psalm 23, the Lord calls himself a shepherd. The Lord is my what? Shepherd, I shall not want. And so, in this time, the shepherd was looked at favorably. And I think the idea of Jesus being for all people, for the Gentiles who came bearing expensive gifts, for the Jews who were there in the stable with Joseph and Mary, this young couple, and these shepherds coming to see him, is the idea that Jesus is for the common person. He's for all people. Certainly a beautiful thing. He is for the rich. He is for the poor. He is for Joe the plumber. And he's for Joe the shepherd. Joe the scholar. Jesus is for everybody. But one view is, again, that in this window we see the shepherds in that way. Another minority view that was... uh, taught by a man named Alfred Edersheim long ago when he wrote the book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And he was a a fine scholar. Another view of the shepherds was this. Edersheim argued that these were no ordinary shepherds. He argues that these were shepherds that had a particular task. Bethlehem is five and a half miles from Jerusalem. And every year at Jerusalem, remember they had the, the Passover. And what did they do? to the animals at Passover. They killed them. And substitutes were offered, ultimately, on the Day of Atonement. And what was the requisition? What was requisite of these animals? They had to be without what? Spot or blemish. And so he argued that these were no ordinary shepherds out in the field near Jerusalem, but that these were the shepherds who were over what was known as the Tower of the Flock, that these were the shepherds who were in charge of picking out the sheep that were without spot or blemish for Passover. So they were inspectors of a sort. So his argument is they went to the stable to give the inspection that this is the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Well, certainly Jesus is depicted in the Bible as that spotless substitute who was willingly sacrificed in our place, but Again, that is a minority view. So the common man, as we look in this uh, stained glass window with the shepherds, or these were special shepherds. But we must not miss the takeaway from them, I think, that is most central here, that we should see in the window for our purposes, for our direction. And that is what the text bears out about them is that they were the first humans to share the good news about Jesus. Look, if you would, in the text in Luke chapter 2. In verse 8, it says there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Verse 10, it says the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you what? Good news. And that is the words there related to the word from which we get gospel. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, notice the phraseology, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. All those wonderful words about Jesus here. And so they get the message about the gospel, the good news. And the text says that they go to the stable. 
And if you read down in verse 17, in the NIV translation, it says that when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. That is, they spread the word, or they announced the word there about what they had been told about this good news of a Savior coming into the world. They became the first enthusiastic witnesses to Jesus Christ and why he had come into the world. And as we stop by the stained glass gospel pictures this morning and look at these familiar depictions, what we should take away perpetually from Christmas, and I hope that when you read these scenes in the future, you can picture yourself as stopping by a stained glass window and pondering the scene. And I hope that from now on in your life, and I know you don't remember everything I say. You should, but you don't. You probably remember this much of what is said over the years. Hopefully it's making a little dent. But I do hope you'll remember this. That on December 18th, 2016, surrounded by stained glass windows at Concord Baptist Church, we visited the scenes. And that every time you look at them from now on and you read about Mary, Mary, did you know? Yes, she came to know that she had to rely on him for salvation and forgiveness, that I have relied upon Jesus Christ for my eternal destiny. And have you done that? When you look at the wise men, recall that in your growing relationship with Jesus, you should be a great worshiper of him. Worship and praise and adoration and submission should be coming from your lips. Absolute devotion. And thirdly, that you seek to give him your best at all times and in all places. When people are looking or when people are not looking, that Jesus Christ is always looking. He's always there and he loves you and he's remaking you and you want to give him your best. And then finally, when you stop and look at the shepherds, Remember, you have a mission in life, a central mission in life, and that is to be like the shepherds, that when you have heard the message of the good news, you carry it to others around you because that is one of the central purposes of why God is letting you live and me live on this planet. We shall be his witnesses, the text says in the book of Acts, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Father, we thank you for words, but we thank you sometimes for images the words bring to our minds. Thank you for Mary and her submissive faithfulness and obedience. But Lord, we thank you that she was a sinner who rejoiced in God her Savior. Help each of us, Lord, to make sure that we have ourselves rejoiced in God our Savior that we have trusted in Jesus and if one or many in this room today could say that they have not done so that Lord even as we sing in a moment that they would call upon you to forgive them and give them eternal life help us Lord to become great worshipers who give you our best like the wise men and Lord enthusiastic witnesses like the shepherds who spread the message. God, help us to remember these things every time we see a stained glass for the rest of our lives. 
We pray now, Lord, that you would bless this time of commitment. We pray that you would do unseen things in hearts as people call out to you and apply what we have taught. And we pray, Lord, that if there are those who need to make decisions to become a part of this fellowship, to follow you in baptism, to share with us that they have trusted you as Lord and Savior this day or in the past days. God, we pray that you help those things to take place for your own Lord name's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of commitment this morning is Jesus is tenderly calling. We invite you to respond as God so leads you.